Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 17th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today, we've got David Scott and Mark Anderson. Welcome to the program, both. Now, we're going to get kicked off with the uh, CPTPP. Uh, this is the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, because by putting CP on the front, everybody that objected to the Trans-Pacific Partnership several years ago when it was hitting all the headlines will have completely forgotten what it represents. Uh, so to kick off here, I'm not going to show the whole thing, but I just want to give you an impression of the government's uh, excitement about what's been done here. We've just agreed one of the biggest trade deals of all time. After months of negotiation, the UK is about to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. The CPTPP is a trade agreement between 11 dynamic countries like Australia, Canada, Japan, Malaysia and Mexico. It will help us unlock the benefits of Brexit for people across the UK. And it will give us access to tariff-free trade with some of the world's fastest growing economies. But what does that actually mean? So if that hasn't been enough to make everybody physically ill before their lunch, uh, let's just have a look at, well, let's bring them on screen. Here they are. There's Kemi Badnock and all the rest uh, at the signing ceremony. Um, but let's have a look at what impact this is going to have uh, on the UK's economy. Let's bring it on screen uh, because it is significant. It is going to be 1.8 billion pounds over the next 15 years is what most people think. That's going to add, David, 0.08% uh, to GDP. Uh, that is massively impressive. Not. Um, I mean, if it's, if it's really as trivial as that, it's hardly worth the video. Well, it, this is a very good point. So, so let's, uh, if it's not about trade then, because I mean, clearly it isn't, uh, what is it about? Well, one thing that it certainly seems to be about is data. So I'm just going to bring people back to uh, 2020 and the UK's policy paper on the national data strategy. Uh, and uh, well, there is uh, uh, the digital minister at the time talking about this. Liz Truss also had comments to make about it in 2020 when she was Foreign Secretary. So let's remind ourselves what she said. Membership of CPTPP would hitch the UK to the fast-growing Pacific region. It also helps us strengthen our ties with some of our key international allies like Canada, Singapore and Australia. This, is, this to me is about strengthening the group of countries that believe in free trade, but also believe in the rules-based global system because free trade and rules-based global system, these are the same in the minds of uh, some people anyway. Uh, this enables us to sign up to advanced digital provisions, in effect become part of a digital free trade area. And I think that's incredibly important for the UK. Uh, I believe that by becoming part of CPTPP and by signing up to these advanced agreements in areas like services and digital, we will help push the World Trade Organization to adapt new rules and modernize its rulebook, particularly in these types of areas. So this has been a major focus for this Tory government for many, many years. Obviously, Liz Trust, when she made that statement, was Foreign Secretary. Uh, but uh, this is something that's been uh, running through uh, Tory government for the last number of years. Now, I just want to bring this on screen. This is the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And they were, uh, in 2021, in July, assessing CPTPP without a national digital regulatory strategy sorry, accessing that without that, and they're suggesting that creates challenges. But their key point here is that the UK government is in effect using free trade agreements as a major policy tool to attain its ambition to become 
what they describe as a champion of the international flow of data. Uh, doing so without a clear domestic trade policy is unwise, says the UK Trade Policy Observatory. But of course, uh, when did the uh, Tory party uh, or any, in fact, party in the UK government ever worry about wisdom? Um, so, David, this is clearly a very big part of it. It is a big part of the deal that's been done, uh, and it's a big part of the agreement that's been signed. Um, and if we look at what the UK government's doing with data protection uh, and data transfers, this, this is a key focus of it, particularly around digital identity. Of course, it's necessary for, for international data flows if we're going to talk about uh, central bank digital currencies. It feeds into a whole range of policy areas, and it's clearly right at front and centre in this agreement. Yes, and it's it's very strange that that's the that's the line they've chosen to to define it and 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 to encourage us to to support this. Uh, you would have thought that restoring links to Australia and New Zealand, the links, the trading links that were severed by the European Union membership and the European Union trade tariff walls that kept out all of the products we used to import from. Uh, uh, from the the, the uh, former dominions um, would have been celebrated as and and this and this agreement would have been celebrated as part of relinking Britain to its former role in the world. Now we're free from the shackles of the EU, but they didn't choose to put it in those terms. They've cho they've chosen to put it very much in globalist terms, not in British terms. Very strange. Uh, well, uh, to be fair, they have touched on this uh, in their comments. But of course, the, tr the, tr the trouble is, uh, David, how do you uh, make a big deal of that, about trading with physical goods with uh, the far side of the world, when you're at the same time you're saying, net zero, we've got to stop this kind of thing? Well, the net zero stops many types of things. Uh, it's uh, currently threatening the steel industry in Wales, and it's threatening the car industry all across Europe. And uh, it threatens our many parts of our environment in the UK. Um, so this is this is a fundamental error that's, that that permeates government: the inability to tell the truth about the climate, the willingness to buy into the climate hysteria, and to allow it to drive policy. It, as long as they're doing that, uh, ideas such as uh, sovereignty are purely theoretical. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, we'll touch on this some more in extra. But in the meantime, related to it, because there's another aspect of this, is shipbuilding, David. Yes, yeah, so we have a video which, we'll, which I'll, I'll kind of narrate over the top of here because this is HMS Cardiff um, coming out of the fabrication shed at Govan on the Clyde, or rather the front half of it is being taken out of the fabrication shed here. Uh, and 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 part ready for joining to its its rear half, and um, so it's interesting videos, if if you do that well, if you do that to a car that's an insurance write off isn't it if you try to chop it <laughs> cut and shut yeah. well this is true but there's there is a there is a strange balletic quality about watching these um, time lapse fo photographs as these enormous pieces of 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 ship fabrication are glided about with a little man with a controller that looks like he's playing on a PlayStation. And uh, he, he's controlling all of, all of this uh, steerable multi-wheel lifting apparatus. And uh, you see the, the two halves of the ship uh, coming very close together and closer and closer. 
uh, as they're going to join them before it's launched. And um, they, they continue this and um, right up to the point where you get to the really tricky bit, which is the last six inches, of course, where you've got to make sure everything absolutely aligned. And then they stop the video, but we'll trust them that it all went well. Um, and there is now uh, soon to be a whole ship replacing the two halves of ships making HMS Cardiff. And that's the latest Type 26 uh, frigate. So this prompted me to uh, delve into, to see, to try and improve my understanding of just what the Navy is and what it's for. We all were building all these frigates. Why, okay, why are we building them? So um, the UK Defence Journal here quotes James Heapy of the uh, Under Secretary of State for Defence. He said, in 2030, odd, it's always 2030, uh, the Royal Navy will maintain its primary outputs for homeland defence, carrier strike, littorial strike, and persistent engagement with more advanced capabilities as part of Integrated Force 30. Okay, so I went to remind myself what Integrated Force 30 was. And when it comes to the Navy, here's a list of all the projects they're going to, they're going to work on. Now, remember the Navy at the moment is about 33,000 personnel. It's got, in theory, 70 ships, but a lot of those are small, and one of them is HMS Victory. Um, and 83 if you include the um, uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliaries. But the main ships are two Queen Elizabeth-class uh, aircraft carriers, one of which is serviceable, um, two Albion-class um, assault ships, six Type 45s, I'm not sure how many of those are serviceable, and 11 Type 23 frigates. So those, uh, plus six subs and four ballistic missile subs. So that's the core of the Navy. And you see here all the range of uh, projects they're working on as part of Integrated Force 30. Uh, Type 31 frigates, upgrades to torpedoes, new mine hunting capability, uh, the development of the Type 32 um, uh, frigate for um, territorial waters. Uh, defense, etc., and then carrying on, we've got future commando, multi-role support ships. There are a lot of projects that are engaged in the Ministry of Defense, are showing the detail of just what that is. But that's obviously not that doesn't get to the why. So I was digging for the why. So if you go back a, a couple of years, March 2021, we have a UK government uh, 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 publication, Global Britain in a Competitive Age. Um, so this is the kind of core policy document. Now, they go on and describe the integrated defence review that came from this, and somewhat concerningly, um, the core idea here is the Prime Minister, so that was Boris Johnson's, Boris Johnson's vision for the UK in 2030. So all of this is basically Boris Johnson's vision, we're being told, um, and uh, the, the, it describes the government's assessment of the major trends that will shape national security, where you absolutely should be doing this, and the strategic framework, and they absolutely should have one of those. But what exactly is it? Well, um, they're talking about, um, first, an overriding priority is to protect and promote the interests of the British people. Now, I would argue, um, if you look at, for example, the migrant crisis and the economic policies they're following, and COVID, they've not done that, but still, that's what they're saying. Um, so they're talking about the, 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 the concentrations on sovereignty, which they define as the ability of the British people to elect the political representatives democratically. I thought that was an interesting definition of sovereignty, rather puts the politicians at the top of it. Uh, security, building societal resistance as echoes of hybrid warfare. And prosperity, which they define as high level of economic and social well-being. 
So notice how the definition of prosperity has been moved there as well. Um, now, moving on with this, uh, they say attaining our objectives under the strategic framework will involve some significant shifts in policy. So there are movements here. Um, shaping the international order of the future. So that's what the ships are for. The ships are for shaping the international order of the future. We will move from defending the status quo within the post-Cold World international system to dynamically shaping the post-COVID order. Post-COVID? This is odd language. Extending in the future frontiers of cyber, cyberspace and space and protecting democratic values. So again, this, this constant harping on of democracy is the, is, is the value that we all share. This is, a de, this is the defining thing, we're being told. Um, Europe's at the heart of it. Climate is at the heart of it, of course. Uh, we will lead efforts to reset the world's relationship with nature. Reset, interesting word. And what else is at the part of it? Well, the Indo-Pacific. We will pursue deeper engagement in the Indo-Pacific to support um, uh, shared prosperity, regional stability with stronger diplomatic trading ties, etc. Uh, and they list Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, South Korea. We will seek closer relations through existing institutions such as ASEAN and seek accession to CPTPP. So this agreement that you've described, it maybe it doesn't have a huge uh, economic impact, although that's strange because you think it should do, but it certainly is geopolitical. It was part of the defence review objectives. Indeed. But on the issue of ships and shipbuilding, particularly for the Navy, uh, unfortunately, uh, the House of Commons Defence Committee has just released this report. Uh, it is broke uh, and it's time to fix it, the UK's defence procurement system. Uh, and let's just uh, have a look at what they have to say because they're talking about Type 26 frigates. The delay in the Type 26 programme comes at a cost of £233 million, close to a quarter of a billion pounds, thus replacing, thus placing further pressure on an already, already high, highly stretched naval budget. Okay, so that's what they're saying. So if you put that into context of that's how much the overrun is right now, as opposed to £1.8 billion pounds from T, uh, CPTPP over 15 years, well, maybe we're not making a profit there. But anyway, uh, let's just remind ourselves just literally a few seconds of what we showed you from Rishi Sunak at the NATO summit on Friday's programme. Just re remind ourselves of this. And the Royal Navy, including our two aircraft carriers, providing around a quarter of NATO's maritime capability. So, David, he was absolutely banging on about two aircraft carriers when, as the point I made on Friday was, well, that's one aircraft carrier uh, because uh, the other one is in dry dock uh, and it's currently being harvested for parts for the one that's actually still, still afloat. But coming back to this report then, uh, let's look at uh, the next little quote from it. Uh, they say, moreover, DENS's poor oversight of the Type 26 program, coupled with its highly unenviable track record, of managing ship refits, some of which have run years late, added to the pro propulsion problems with the Royal Navy's Type 45 destroyers, has led to a perfect storm whereby barely half of the surface escort fleet, itself much reduced, is operationally available at any one time. Now, of course, this is the point that Brian has been making time and time again over the last, uh, well, 15 years anyway. Um, so, uh, David, uh, you know, um, 
based on bearing in mind what you've just uh, commented on uh, very, very briefly, the, the situation is pretty poor. Well, the, it's 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 been taken apart over the years. The the core of a lot of these things were were the Royal Navy dockyards themselves, and I don't think they have anything like the capability that they had. Uh, we are uh, only using um, private contractors, and those have had too many design changes, too many stops and starts. So we've 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 reduced hugely the investment into shipbuilding coming from the source of the Royal Navy, and now we're trying to crank it up again. And not surprisingly, this is coming with problems, with growing pains. Yeah. It takes it takes a while to build up the infrastructure and the capability, and it's much easier to destroy it than it is to build it. Uh, well, indeed it is. Okay, let's move on and uh, welcome Mark to the program. Mark, uh, we're talking education. Yeah, speaking of post-COVID matters, guys, here we have the Brookings Institution, which curiously, like the RAND Corporation, another in-depth think tank is always taking in-depth looks at our education system here in the States. But anyway, this Brookings uh, posting here, the pandemic has, has had devastating impacts on learning. What will it take to help students catch up? And what, what's basically uh, at issue here is that the United States, uh, despite uh, the decades of educational failures, especially in reading and math, still wants to push the conventional education system and add on universal preschool, one of the great fears of the traditional conservative movement. And so there's a divergent path here. Um, and we'll talk about it here. That other path is more of a homeschooling based approach that the COVID-19 pandemic has enabled. And in fact, it helped the homeschooling industry grow for obvious reasons. So which path will America take? Will it go a more freedom route or will it go the conventional route? with even more institutional failures and universal preschool added on. So kids are away from their parents at an even younger age. And we can go through a little bit of the Brookings thing here on the next slide. As we outlined in our new research study released in January, the cumulative, cumulative impact of COVID, uh, the pandemic on students' academic achievement has been large, and they've been doing a lot of tracking and things like that. So the establishment is, is, is saying that COVID really hurt education. And moving on from there, we can read a little bit of the next one. Average math in average fall 2021 math test scores in grades three through eight were 0.20 to 0.27 standard deviations lower relative to, this, relative to the same grade peers in the fall of 2019, while reading test scores were also lower. They're calling it a sizable drop. Uh, a major quote there, further achievement tended to drop more between the fall of 2020 and 2021 than between 2019 and 2020, both overall and differentially by school poverty, indicating that disruptions to learning, as the establishment calls it, have continued to negatively impact students well past the initial hits following the spring 2020 school closures. And we can go on from there. Um, here we have uh, where it gets into the way that the federal government wants this thing to go. And this is from um, March 9 of this year, 2023. And it says Biden requests $90 billion for education department in fiscal year 24 budget. That's the fiscal year that starts October 1st of this year. 
And so high poverty schools and special education services would receive the largest K through 12 funding. Special special ed services is code for universal preschool. And going on from there, President Joe Biden released an ambitious spending plan for fiscal 24 with 90 billion for the Department of Ed, a 13.6 or $10.8 billion increase over current budget allocations. So they're getting really uh, aggressive about this. At the bottom of this slide here, it says other initiatives include 500 million with an M for a new demonstration program to expand access to free preschool and 578 million to increase the number of school-based counselors, psychologists, social workers, and other health professionals in K through 12 schools. Very much a socialist, it takes a village approach here to education. And we can go from there. Um, Two days ahead of the two-year anniversary of the passage of the American Rescue Plan, which provided the largest one-time fiscal investment in education in response to COVID, with $121.9 billion in funding, that's $121.9 billion, Biden's latest annual budget proposal aims to continue addressing academic recovery efforts, recovering from COVID, and closing the so-called achievement gaps particularly the $2.2 billion increase in Title I investments. Title I has to be or has to do with poverty students, so-called poverty students. And we'll move on from there. Uh, they're saying there's some GOP resistance on Capitol Hill. I'm not sure how serious that resistance really is. But what this is amounting to is, as I mentioned on this slide, the Latin phrase in loco parentis, in the place of the parents. That's really where the federal initiative is headed. The budget's $500 million proposal to fund a new initiative for districts to expand free preschool in school and community-based settings puts universal preschool within our reach, quote-unquote, said Roberto Rodriguez, the Ed Department's Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development. So the Biden administration is uh, finally trying to achieve the liberal wet dream, you might say, of universal preschool. And there's another slide that kind of cements that idea. We know there is no greater area in education that returns on investment than investing in early childhood education. Rodriguez, the head of the education department, said this new investment builds on the president's plan for a federal state partnership that would support universal free free preschool across the nation. And so the federal federal government's uh, um, solution to what happened with COVID is more spending, uh, more of the same, and probably more failures, especially in education and math, even while they're claim, claiming they're gonna improve those areas. And here in this next slide is a gentleman I met in early 2021 in um, the Woodlands, Texas, near Houston, at a constitutional sheriff's organization. Uh, they had a, pol- or a, a policy summit there. And this is Michael Peruca. Uh, he ran as a Constitution Party presidential candidate uh, some years back, and he's run for some other offices since. Uh, and he has been saying, he's been on the front lines, guys, saying we had the COVIDocracy, we had the COVID crackdown, we finally got these kids out of these socialist public schools, and now we want to put them back. We've got lots of so-called Republicans and so-called conservatives, Peruka says. Uh, they're saying that you know, we got to kids get our kids back in school. We got to get things back to normal. He's saying, stop the presses. We, we, we've got the golden chance here to finally break up the public school monopoly, the huge pull it has on property taxes to finance it. 
we, we've got a chance at freedom. We've got a chance to break out of the jail. And so Peruka is saying, we've got to take this chance and not allow the federal government to sew this up and add universal preschool. Again, getting kids away from their parents at an even younger age, and that'll make a burgeoning homeschool movement a little bit more difficult, even though it is still growing uh, post-COVID. And uh, here, we, we just have some miscellaneous we can look at. This is from Republic Broadcasting, uh, an article where they're saying the unconstitutional impact of the U.S. Department of Ed, detrimental effects on student education. There's the symbol that many people believe the Department of Ed, which was created as a cabinet-level department in the late 1970s, they think that agency should be abolished. There was an initial Department of Education early on during Andrew Johnson, way back in the 19th century, but it really never took root very deeply. And um, there's, there's other things on here. Uh, the power is not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution, nor prohibited, prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And that's the 10th Amendment. And Michael Peruca and others that believe in true educational freedom are calling attention to that. And Ron Paul has been quoted as saying uh, on the floor of Congress in 2001, the former Texas congressman, the Constitution does not even authorize the U.S. Department of Education. So there's a very strong constitutional reason to get rid of the Department of Ed altogether, along with growing the homeschool movement. And this is that other path that we could take. But the Biden administration, of course, wants us to take the bureaucratic socialistic path. And uh, that's the main stuff, Mike, on what's going on there. There's some other things I had about um, uh, this this matter here, and I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. Uh, Why Johnny Can't Read. Now, this book came out in 1955, and this is, fits into what I was saying about how the um, federal government has been working on failed policies, even going back before the Department of Ed was created. And that has to do with whole language instead of phonics reading. And Why Johnny Can't Read was put out in 1955. And as that slide said, uh, Rudolf Fleisch, the author of Why Johnny Can't Read, still saw no improvements over decades and put out another book called Why Johnny Still Can't Read in 1981. And um, I could get into the rudiments of, of how teaching someone to read actually works. We can get into that in extra if you'd like. And there's even another book here in this next slide, uh, Why Johnny uh, Can't Read, Nor Can He Write, Nor Can He Do Math. That's another book that came out. And this is John Saxon in this slide. He was a math pioneer. Um, I met him when I worked for the South Bend, Indiana Tribune. He, he lived until 1996. He was born in the 1920s. And he had a common sense approach to education that uh, stressed uh doing an algebra uh, lesson and keep keep going, but then you would you would do older lessons to reinforce what you've already learned as you even did the new lessons. And so he had a pioneering way of doing math that's largely been forgotten by the school establishment. So the, the techniques that could rescue the public school system in the states have been largely ignored. So uh, that's why many are calling for true education freedom rather than a universal preschool lockdown and getting kids away from parents at an ever younger age. So that that's kind of what's before the American people right now. And it's not being talked about all that much. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Let's uh, move on, David, to some economic stuff. And uh, well, the rent is too low. I, I, I somewhat 
comical piece by Financial Times. Increasingly, they're having to turn to humour to actually describe what the economy is doing. Um, they, they write, in case you've already forgotten, the latest Bank of England monetary policy said the committee was continuing to monitor closely the impact of the bank rate increases so far. Um, uh, the committee also recognised it become more important to consider the developments in the rental market. The, uh, the, the Times, Financial Times comments, this last sentence reads a little bit like, and someone should probably check out what that screaming sound coming from the basement is. But it's fairly important. So the, the highlighting there that, yeah, okay, the, the rental market is starting to come into uh, some focus at long last from the, uh, from the Bank of England. Uh, the FT goes on and looks at the reason that uh, the bank interest rates are not having the impact in the, uh, on the economy that they'd hoped, partly because the amount of floating rate mortgages is hugely reduced. It was 70% and it's now less than 20% of all more mortgages are floating and, um, and, and most are now fixed over uh, a certain number of years, be it two, three, four or five. And the FT considered, um, uh, comments, um, uh, quoting uh, Shafrik and Kennedy, in public and media discourse, mortgage holders tend to attract more comment and attention than private rentals. Yet on the, just under 20% of all households are now in the private rental sector. Um, the transmission mechanism here would, to our minds, be more indirect in the case of mortgages as the ability of landlords to pass on increased costs will be limited by the setting of rents in the rental market. So the highlighting here that the the the, the tools that the uh, Bank of England has to control the economy wisely guide us all through the troubled times. A lot of these levers are not actually connected to anything, and uh, they are finding themselves um, struggling to influence uh, the economy in the way they would choose. Well, I'm not certain they uh, were ever able to influence the economy in the way that they would choose. Uh, they've certainly influenced it pretty negatively by the printing presses, as we've covered many times. And let's, that brings us on to the Resolution Foundation, uh, who have been pushing, uh, they've published a new report, uh, but they, they've been pushing this out uh, today on Twitter. I just wanted to highlight a couple of tweets from them. Um, so what does this mean? Wealth falls from a peak of 840% of GDP in quarter one, 2021, to 650% uh, of GDP in quarter one, 2023. That is a 2.1 trillion pound fall in cash terms, the biggest fall in household wealth since the Second World War. Uh, and so they have uh, shown a graph in this tweet, which, which shows that very nicely. Um, but that is quite a spectacular statistic, David. It certainly is. I mean, it's huge. And what is it? That's a bubble popping, right? We've had zero interest rates for years, and this has created a giant bubble in more or less everything. And these things cannot be sustained. Eventually, inflation starts to run away, they start to put up interest rates, and everything tanks. Now, the 2.1 trillion wasn't real, it was a paper profit on things like house values, and stock, and stock values, and bond values. And all of these asset classes are now falling, and people are realizing that the wealth they thought they had, they, they, they didn't. It was a, it was a paper um, value that was only um, held up by zero interest rates and easy money. And when that goes away, as it must, um, the reality uh, reasserts itself. Um, and then they, they said this, uh, because this, during the presentation when they launched the report this morning, uh, they said, or they asked, what's the biggest problem with rising interest rates? 
And they say that rising cost of government debt is an even bigger problem than the rising cost of people's mortgages. Uh, as, a second, as the second problem uh, affects less than one in three households, whereas everyone is affected by the first problem. So they are particularly concerned uh, about that. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that very, very briefly. Well, government debt is huge. It's going to become increasingly unaffordable. Already is in the United States. It's going to go that way rapidly here as well. And the other thing that they were saying is that, well, there's some positives here because uh, the affordability of houses will get better uh, rather than being 8.9 times loan-to-value ratio, uh, sorry, loan-to-salary ratio. Um, it'll, it'll come down to 5.6 times price-to-earnings ratio. Right now, when I was young, it was three. Right? Uh, so it's still not particularly affordable. But what that implies is that the people who bought houses and have mortgages um, that they've purchased in the last 10 years, they're all going to be wiped out. Right? Yes. That's catastrophic for the housing market. And they don't really go into that issue. Uh, well, but, but uh, this would be a reset of the housing market, wouldn't it? And uh, uh, but anyway, that means that the generation, the, the baby boomer generation has done extremely well out of this whole situation. Uh, the next generation is going to do fairly well out of it because house prices are going to be at a level that perhaps are more affordable. But in the meantime, you've got this big uh, 30 or 40 year difference where, uh, in fact, people, as you say, are going to be put out of business completely and completely bankrupted. Well, we'll see how that works out in the end. Now, look, we've got to move on. So I want to say, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There's plenty to, uh, there are opportunities to help us out there and it'll be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share uh, material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org. So let's just look at uh, a couple of the things on there. Following on from Friday's report from Vanessa on the BBC, uh, and um, apparently featuring terrorists in their documentaries. I've just uh, put up a short article on this today. We'd like that very much shared, and we'd very much like the BBC to be asked some questions about this. Uh, so please get onto that. Uh, now, the uh, online safety bill is back in the House of Lords uh, tomorrow for another uh, session. Uh, and so we uh, want to highlight this section on the UK column website, uh, ukcolumn.org slash censored, uh, which brings us basically up to date from the beginning of this whole program to limit freedom of speech uh, on the internet and otherwise. Um, so if you have a look at that uh, and share that one as well. And then finally, uh, an article from Mark. Uh, two seconds on this, Mark. Yeah, this is a comprehensive article of the Texas Independent Convention. Uh, the um, challenge to the duopoly, the Democratic-Republican dominance that was the main theme that I covered in early April, a very comprehensive article. I understand some video uh, and or audio clips go with it. So check it out. It, it really gets into what's wrong and what, what can be done to fix the duopoly here. Yes, thank you. And uh, David, that brings us on to a new article from you on uh, Frenethi. These are articles over the next three weeks um, on Frenethi. This one is on fire safety. It's called Reckless Endangerment. Uh, now, what we discovered in, from old press cuttings is uh, there was a fire uh, started by the staff at Fernethi when it was a, a, a residential school, um, and this uh, set light to the woodland roundabout. And it's, it, the report uh, reads, two fire engines from Kinemu and Ailith attended, and assistance was summoned from Forth and Dundee. So you had fire engines from four different towns. Uh, they used six uh, jets to stop the blaze spreading, and it still took out eight acres. 
Uh, but the report says the children at school, uh, which is for those in need of a holiday, were elsewhere at the time on afternoon outings. Isn't that nice? Uh, transpires, it's completely uh, fallacious. The truth was all the children were in the building. And we have here uh, 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 one of the Fanetti girls' recollections. She said, I remember it was a forest fire. I remember being in the house and everyone was talking about it. Mrs. Fletcher was there and telling us we might have to be sent home if the fires got worse. I remember feeling relief and hoping they would get worse so that we could be sent home to my family. Um, and uh, so what happened was uh, they kept them locked down uh, for the whole day and uh, told it would appear the fire brigade that there was no one in the house, despite the fact it was surrounded by a burning forest. Uh, this is not the only case of reckless endangerment to do with fire safety. We go into others. And we ask at the end the question, uh, there must, the, the, you know, it's, it's not possible with these events for the authorities, Strathclyde Regional Council, uh, uh, as it was then, not to have been aware that there were problems. Um, there must have been questions asked. And uh, the question that we have is why in 30 years did no one intervene in what was happening at Fernethi? even when there was all these signs that it was being badly run, badly managed, and that the uh, welfare of the children was, were being, was being neglected. Yes. Okay. Thank you, David. Now, Mark, let's uh, come back to you. And, uh, well, RFK Jr. Uh, continues with his presidential campaign, but he's increasingly under attack. Oh, major attack. Um, this is a, a textbook case, you might say, of the mass media cartel attacking a Kennedy. Now, you would think the Democrat establishment, the liberal establishment, would at least be reasonably welcoming to a Kennedy, yes, a Kennedy, running for president, no less. Whether it's wise for another Kennedy to run for president, we all know maybe that's not so wise. The Kennedy retirement plan can be a little rough, you might say. But here, this is New York Magazine on this slide here. And this is part of advanced publications about a 100-year-old media conglomerate that owns Condé Nast, and Condé Nast in turn operates that magazine, New York Magazine. And so they're calling Kennedy a conspiracy-spewing kind of guy, rather crude language to say the least. And on this slide here, uh, this begins the article, while waiting for his plate of meatloaf gravy and an iceberg wedge, at an empty restaurant in Concord, New Hampshire on the first day of June, RFK Jr. was gently explaining to me, the reporter for New York Mag, that nobody knows whether HIV is the sole cause of AIDS. And I put, I, I wrote there with my stylist, larger questions omitted. Basically what that's about is that it's popularly known and it's often widely discussed that HIV may not be the sole cause of AIDS. And New York Mag is acting like that's an unforgivable sin, even to make that casual statement, which many others have made, not just RFK Jr. And so it's more of this uh, browbeating and a uh, brick bat throwing that the mass media syndicate is so good at rather than asking questions itself. And uh, so it's a very unwelcoming atmosphere. As we saw, the picture of Kennedy on that cover was quite almost sinister looking. And... Uh, I mentioned advanced publications. Uh, I don't know that we need to look at this slide. Um, another, uh, advanced publications is also a major shareholder in Charter Communications. That's just a brief mention. Charter Communications was involved in buying up a lot of independent cable companies 
uh, that used to be fairly independent across the United States. And now it's a much more consolidated uh, cable company, cable TV uh, apparatus. So it's much harder to have public access programming. Uh, There's names like Spectrum and others that are pretty much monopolistic. And so um, this is a major media company that's coming after Kennedy. Uh, Anyway, uh, this is a little bit more of the writing of this uh, this illustrious writer for this magazine that HIV infection causes AIDS is AIDS is long established science, but the conspiracy theory Kennedy is laying out alongside several of its associated tendrils has deep roots and has borne tragic fruit. And there's a claim here that a South African leader was also skeptical of the HIV theory of AIDS and supposedly denied medications to the population there and some people died. The mythologies that RFK is talking about, according to this writer, are the chronological starting points for opinions Kennedy puts forth in his 2021 book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. And then the writer is trying to say that these are disproven arguments in Kennedy's book about Fauci. But everyone I've talked to, a lot of people, plus my own reading, I beg to differ. Virtually every page in that book is footnoted with sources, exhaustively sourced, in fact. And you can read just about every page of that book on Fauci and and come away with the unmistakable impression that Fauci is literally of criminal intent. And so um, that that New York Mag would go this far to to try and, uh, you know, uh, blindside RFK Jr., I think tells a lot about the establishment fearing that someone intelligent about the Vax issue might get into public office with the Kennedy name in his favor, of course. And uh, we can move on from there. Um, COVID, like the AIDS epidemic before, before it, provided fertile ground for conspiracy theorizing. So here again, um, the magazine is trying to um, tie Uh, any alternative views about AIDS into alternative views that were out there about COVID. And therefore, it's kind of a guilt by association approach. And Kennedy happens to be in the crosshairs at this point in time. And um, uh, we need not look at that slide. I think we can move on from there. Um, And this is kind of interesting. Um, Kennedy crowed to me, the the reader uh, of the, excuse me, the writer of that magazine, about his horseshoe coalition gathered around a campaign he views as fundamentally populist. And listen to this uh, language here against Kennedy. And it's quite a band he has put together. Crunchy Whole Foods shopping anti-vaxxers, paunchy architects of hard right authoritarianism looking to boost a chaos agent, Nader Stein third party perma gremlins, some Kennedy family superfans and rich tech bros seeking a lone wolf to legitimize them. Their convening gives the impression of weightiness, but if you so much as blow on them, this alliance would shatter into, a, shatter into a million pieces. The only thing that seems to bind them together is Kennedy, the current embodiment of a warped fantasy of marginalization and martyrdom that has become ever more appealing and thus politically significant in an age of disinfo and distrust in government and institutions. So one could just summarize this by saying that there's a big fear among the establishment, rather than embracing the the liberal traditions of the Kennedy family, 
which granted is a little is a little bit more conservative version of liberalism. But rather than embracing the Kennedy mystique, the Kennedy tradition, the uh, establishment is going all out against him, uh, not not just for who he is, but for the kinds of questions he's asking. So it's very illustrative of the political climate here in the United States. But RFK notably was supposed to be at that independent convention that I covered in Texas that I just posted the article for. And that convention is putting out the message that the media and dominant party establishment doesn't want to hear, that people are going to bolt those parties, they're going to put aside the mass media syndicate, and they're going to, they're going to go with new media and new parties. And Kennedy represents that. And incidentally, his campaign manager is Dennis Kucinich, the former Cleveland mayor and former Ohio congressman that I interviewed at the Texas convention. And I believe that interview is posted. Yeah. So it, it's, Kennedy is part of a bigger movement here that the establishment fears. Yep. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Uh, right. Let's move to Ukraine then. I just want to mention briefly the uh, uh, attack on the Kerch Bridge. Uh, if we just bring the picture on screen. Um, so the Russians are calling it a terrorist attack, uh, but two civilians, that uh, was a married couple, were killed uh, when their car, as their car was crossing this. Uh, their daughter was wounded by the explosion. Um, and, uh, well, the roadway was damaged. Actually, the roadway itself doesn't look uh, very damaged. David, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that picture and what might have happened. I mean, I'm sure you won't be able to say what might have happened. I mean, the, the, the uh, Russians or the Ukrainians are saying it was a drone attack. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the, the roadway has uh, collapsed somewhat, but the actual road surface itself doesn't seem to be damaged. So the, the, whatever it was must have happened underneath. Yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhat difficult to imagine what a drone could actually do to, 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 uh, to cause that. Uh, it's lost, one of the main beams from the bridge has lost support. Uh, so it's now only supported in three corners, that, that, that deck section, and is, and is sagging alarmingly as a result. So that either means that the end of the beam itself has been struck and essentially disintegrated, or that the um, supporting pier has. But that, that there's been a loss of support at, at a bearing. Um, so uh, does that look uh, tricky to repair? It depends on the degree of damage. I mean, it's, obviously you've got, a, you've got a big item to lift there and it's got to be realigned and then repaired. Quite tricky, actually, yes. But um, it's, it's perhaps possible to actually jack it back level and execute a repair without having to take a section away and, and rebuild it. Uh, perhaps not. You would need to know a little bit more detail of just to, just what the damage is. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on, David, to hypersonic missiles because uh, apparently we're going to start develop them, developing them. Well, so it would seem. So there's a with a briefing document here from the UK Parliament, uh, giving an overview of of this, what they are and 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 some of the some of the issues that, that surround them. So they define them as uh, missiles that combine speeds of over five times the speed of sound, Mach 5, uh, with significant maneuverability during flight. Uh, they report that uh, China and Russia have deployed them, uh, reportedly, uh, and their speed maneuverability and altitude may challenge existing missile defense defenses. That's a euphemism for we haven't a clue to, as to how to stop them. Um, in developing them, they, they say a little bit, it's quite interesting about some of the technical challenges. 
Uh, one is heat-resistant materials. Now, this was a major issue when, when the spy planes were being developed in the 50s because the, 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 the surface temperature is so high at the sort of speeds they were doing, which was about Mach 3. Um, so the, the report here, air resistance created at hypersonic speeds is huge, generating temperatures of several thousand degrees. And advanced materials such as ceramics are needed to withstand this. Thermal protection for electronics, fuel, and warheads are also crucial. And they also talk about plasma formation. High temperatures at hypersonic speeds can cause the air around the missile to break down into plasma, which is a cloud of electrically charged particles. The, the, the neutrons, protons, and electrons of, a, of an atom become uh, uh, dislocated from one another and in, in form of plasma. This can interfere with signals sent to and from guidance and communication systems. So you get some sort of inkling as to the nature of the technical challenges that are, that are present in this. But these are technical challenges that the Russians and the Chinese have overcome. So the report here, uh, Russia has a system called uh, Avangard, does Mach 20, incredible speed, and one called Zircon, um, which can be launched from naval vessels and does nine times the speed of sound. China has one that does Mach 10, uh, with a range of 2,000 kilometers. United States, well, further tests are planned for 2023. Some systems have been flight tested uh, or had a prototype successfully tested. So the United States doesn't have anything deployable. This is quite uh, significant. David, can I just, sorry, can we just put that one back on screen again for a second? Because I just wanted to mention the common hypersonic glide body which is an HGV that can be launched from either naval or ground-based systems. I think that's quite incredible, you know, because, I mean, they should perhaps have uh, defined the, the acronym a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Sorry. So uh, to, to move on from this, they're also talking about how to actually stop them. And they're saying that, that looking at novel approaches to intercepting hypersonic missiles to exploit the vulnerabilities created by the demanding conditions of sustained hypersonic flight. Now, that's code for our existing missile defense systems in no use, and we're having to look at something entirely innovative to stop these things. Um, it talks about the UK missile defense system, and this doesn't make particularly happy reading because we're investing in ground-based ballistic missile defenses that's due to enter service in 2029, I'm sure Putin has read that as well. Um, the UK also has limited missile defence capabilities in some ground naval platforms to protect the area on ground deployed assets. So basically, the safest place to be is next to a Type 45 destroyer, which is in harbour being repaired, it would seem. And the, the reason I dug into this, just to see what was being said about this and have some sort of idea of the level of technical difficulty, is we're seeing reports like this next one from the Evening Standard. Right, with, a, with an entirely deceptive headline, the MOD set to spend $1 billion boosting the UK's hypersonic missile ability. That implies that we've got the hypersonic missile ability. We don't. And the truth of this is given up in the next sentence. The Ministry of Defence um, is set to spend a billion on accelerating its acquisition of hypersonic weapons. And they're quoting the MOD here. It's anticipated the framework will have a value of billion over a seven-year period. Uh, an early supplier market engagement day is to be held in this summer. So we're absolutely at the start of this process to allow suppliers to gain more information and, quote, ensure the success of the hypersonics program. 
anybody who says, when you're dealing with these sort of technical challenges, uses the phrase ensure the success is either stupid or lying. I'll leave it to you to decide which that was. Yes, okay, thank you for that. And uh, apologies, my HTV joke absolutely failed miserably. But anyway, let's move on uh, to Ben Wallace. Uh, now, of course, uh, just a week or two ago, he very sadly didn't get the NATO job uh, as Secretary General, and uh, Jan Stoltenberg kept his job. Uh, not only did he not get that job, but he's now decided that he doesn't want his current job either. So he has said he's resigning as uh, Defence Secretary at the next cabinet reshuffle. So we don't exactly know when that's going to be. It could be any time before 2025. Maybe he will see out uh, the current parliament. Uh, but uh, at that point, he says he's also not going to restand for as MP. Now, David, uh, what do you think the top uh, reason would be for him leaving his post? Um, well, disgruntled at not getting the top job, I thought would, was the one that occurred to me. But no, no, he wasn't that. In, he, he wasn't that inventive. He stuck with the old trope of uh, because of the effect that my job has on my family, I need to move on. Uh, so it, he's using the family, playing the family card. But anyway, of course. Wait, 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 wait hold, hold it, hold a bit. He was applying for head of NATO whilst NATO's at war with Russia. And his, his reason for leaving his job at the MOD is he wants to spend more time with his family. Well, Does he think we're all dumb? Yes. Uh, so let's move on. We'll just show you how, how dumb he thinks we all are. Because, of course, the problem was that last week, uh, he at the Vilnius conference, he made this comment, the UK is not an Amazon-style weapons delivery service for Ukraine, uh, because he was getting uh, a bit bored with the criticism that we're not supplying weapons to Ukraine fast enough. Uh, so. That got a bit of bad press, certainly from the Ukrainians, and he felt the need to respond to it. So let's bring the tweet on screen. As you can see, it's in Ukrainian, so we will translate. Uh, there was a bit of a, a Twitter thread here. We will translate uh, what he had to say. So let's bring this on. My comments about how best to support Ukraine caused a lot of interest and were somewhat misrepresented. Uh, for the record, as someone who's been at the forefront of mobilizing support for Ukraine, I've discussed the challenges that may arise as we work towards the common goal of helping Ukraine get what it needs to defeat this illegal invasion. I said that Ukraine sometimes needs to realize that many countries and in some parliaments, there's not such, such strong support as in Great Britain. It was a comment not about governments, but more about citizens and members of parliaments. Uh, we're fortunate that the citizens of the United Kingdom and all parties in our parliament support our efforts to provide Ukraine with the necessary means. Our approval ratings for supporting Ukraine are amongst the highest in Europe, over 70%. Uh, my comments were meant to reflect that it is important to remember not to talk to yourself, but to make an effort to reach out to other citizens who still need to be convinced. Uh, the comments about Amazon were made last year to emphasize that Britain's relationship with Ukraine is not transactional, but more partnership based. So now this comment about last year, this is a bit fishy because now remember he had written this in Ukrainian or he had put, put it out on his Twitter feed in Ukrainian. So I assumed that maybe this was a translation issue because I used auto-translate to, to get that. So I asked Alex Thompson to, uh, to translate this particular tweet for me, and he said, it's absolutely right. It says last year, but we've got to remember that Deborah Haynes, just on the 12th of February, uh, July there, uh, said, was talking about the uh, UK is not an Amazon delivery service for weapons to Ukraine, says Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. And she said that he was responding to a question from Sky News about whether the failure of allies to give Zelensky a timeframe for NATO membership uh, at the NATO summit 
uh, would undermine the morale of his troops on the front line. So there's no question that Wallace said this at the NATO summit. So why he's decided to put in his tweet uh, last year, don't really know. Um, but anyway, he went on to say, I'll, now I, pers- I will personally continue to support Ukraine on its path for as long as it takes. But national parliaments often have competing needs and Ukraine uh, and the UK must continue to encourage the strong support with facts and friendship. So that's basically his excuse for the comment. Uh, and very briefly, David, I don't know what uh, what to make of that. Well, there's another possible interpretation that he's looking for his next job to be head of marketing for Amazon. Uh, well, it could be anything's possible. Now, let's uh, change tack then and move on to, uh, well, the weather forecast. Now, I understand from Vanessa it's 50 degrees in, uh, in Damascus today. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'm sure she isn't being bombarded with weather maps like this. <laughs> it, is, it is a form of terror, weather map terrorism. So uh, a Twitter account here, Robin uh, Minotti here, says, I grew up when 40 degrees C in Rome was normal. Now it's only 33 degrees. No need for the psychedelic coloured psyops. And he is quite right. We're getting this everywhere. Everything is these psychedelic scary colours to try and convince us that a beautiful summer's day is in fact the end of the world. Right, so I have a little bit of uh, video here, and this is uh, Julia Hartley Brewer talking about this topic this morning, and I just want to focus on one thing she says, so just have a quick listen to this. We've got this massive heat wave. I've, I'm seeing these glorious pictures on Sky and BBC and everywhere where they're, the, the reporters are near hysterical, um, standing around saying, people can't cope, it's all terrible, it's terribly hot. What, it's the end of tourism. As hundreds of tourists wandering by with shorts holding a bottle of water or an ice cream look perfectly happy, as far as I can tell. This is the thing, people not being allowed to make their own choices and not just being given good advice. It's this nannying of people that I find would be I've I've walked in, you know, in King's Valley. I've been, I've been, you know, I've been at Ayers Rock. Now I have a bit of a problem with that, David. This idea of the nanny state and nannying that's going on, because of course that's not what's going on at all. We are being, this is a psychological operation that's being run on people in order to justify the whole net zero policy and to try to shore up the climate change narrative, uh, and by dismissing it as being just the nanny state. Uh, that immediately dismisses the idea that there's actually a policy agenda at work uh, that people need to be aware of. Yeah, I don't know what her nanny was like, but what's actually happening is people are being terrorised. They're being frightened. They're being forced by psychological manipulation, as you say, to go down a particular political path which involves the impoverishment of the entire country um, it reduces the freedom of movement uh, because travel's bad. It's uh, apparently going to see no shipping in the world, no international airline travel apart from one or two you know, elite persons who will reluctantly travel to you know, Davos and such places to discuss how the rest of us are going to be governed. Um, this is all about an attack on humanity. It's not the nanny state. She's really missed the point very badly here. This is an attack on people's psychology, people's minds, people's balance, people's understanding of the world in which they live to stoke enough fear to support a political agenda, which is, at its heart, profoundly anti-human. Indeed. 
Okay, well, look, we are going to leave the news there for today, but we have one uh, final slide, David. Follows on from Friday quite yes. nicely, actually. <laughs> yes, and from the econ stuff we were talking about today. So this is a hedge fund. Uh, their tagline is specializing in highly complex derivatives and exotic financial instruments for discriminating investors. Right, and the hedge fund manager screaming down the phone, buy gold. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you. We will leave it there. Thank you very much to David and Mark for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, for some UK Column News Extra, uh, if you're a UK Column member. Otherwise, uh, we will be back on Wednesday for the news at 1pm. We'll have an interview going at 1pm tomorrow. Uh, but uh, have a great day, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.